A reading from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab, and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, do not let the matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. 
Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house." because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. O Lord, have mercy on us. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week we heard a story of Saul and how not to repent. How not to repent. And this week we hear a story of David, and it's a harrowing story to hear. To listen to it all in one piece is a tough thing. But it is a story of how to repent. A story of what repentance looks like. If it weren't for this story we might draw the wrong conclusion about King David. We tend to remember David especially as a lowly shepherd, the youngest of his brothers who went and single-handedly defeated Goliath on behalf of the armies of Israel, on behalf of King Saul, saving his people from slavery and despair. He was humble when he defeated Goliath. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, he said as Goliath mocked him. You come with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
the God of the armies of Israel. David knew that if he were to defeat Goliath, it wouldn't be because of his own strength or skill. It would be because the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was fighting for Israel. And so, you know how the story goes, he took up five smooth stones from the brook, and with a single shot, he felled the giant, and the people of Israel routed the Philistines. And David showed himself to be the man God had promised, to be a man after God's own heart, a man of faith, a man unlike Saul who trusted and obeyed God's word. We heard last week how Saul was unfaithful breaking God's command and refusing to acknowledge what he had done, refusing to repent, refusing to turn from his sinful ways. And if it weren't for the story you heard tonight, you might be tempted to think that David was a better man than Saul, that David didn't make the same kind of mistakes that Saul did, that he didn't ever break God's commands, or at least not as badly. And that's what made him a man after God's own heart. If it weren't for the story today, you might think that David had God's favor because he was a good person. But the story today dispels that myth, doesn't it? You can't hear the story today and think that God loved David because David was free from sin or that his sins were trivial or minor. But just to make the point vividly clear, let's review what happened with David. It was the spring of the year, once the rainy season was passed and armies could march again, and kings did whatever military work needed to be done. David had long been king. This is long after last week's story. And this year, Israel had to do battle against the Ammonites. The Ammonites were distant relatives of the Israelites, but they were vicious, and they attacked the people of Israel. And so, King David sent Joab, the commander of his army, to war against the Ammonites. Meanwhile, David stayed back in Jerusalem. And clearly that's where his problem began. This was a relatively new thing for David, to stay behind when his army marched out to war. You can imagine that if his hands had been busy with the work of the kingdom, he would not have had such an occasion to sin. But it wasn't just that he remained back in Jerusalem. His error was even greater because while he was back in Jerusalem, he acted as though there was no war going on at all. Notice, did you notice the difference between David and Uriah? When Uriah came to the city, he refused to go home to eat and drink and sleep with his wife while the army of Israel was out to battle. <clears throat> David, on the other hand, stayed home, eating and drinking and sleeping with another man's wife, showing no solidarity with his army, acting as though there was no war going on at all. You know the old proverb, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Or you can go back further to what God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What better way to rule over sin than to do what God has given you to do? What better way for David to abstain from evil than by being a king, acting like a king, or a husband, or a father, all of which he was. What better way for you and me to avoid temptation than by putting our hands to the work in front of us, to the good work that God has given us to do in our lives, and in our homes, and in our church, and among our neighbors. But David was idle, and he began by breaking the Tenth Commandment, 
coveting his neighbor's wife. And then he broke the sixth commandment, taking her as his own. And if that were that, if that's where this saga had ended, David might have thought that this was the perfect victimless crime. But there is no such thing. He had corrupted the trust between man and wife, and even if the crime never saw the light of day, he had made an adulteress of Bathsheba and stained her conscience, and his own conscience was defiled. It may have remained hidden, the sin may have remained hidden, the harm done to everyone involved may have remained hidden, even until the last day, but that does not mean that this crime had no victim. In his guilty state, David certainly would have wanted it to remain hidden. Confessing, owning what you've done, acknowledging your guilt, being uncovered, is, parable, is painful. It's a terrible thing. It's the very worst moment a person can experience. Lots of folks are glad to do the kind of confessing that isn't painful. Making a half confession or telling your sins to someone who will laugh with you about them. Or like Saul, admitting that they happened, but making excuses to avoid guilt. But those kinds of confessions, or when the sin remains hidden altogether, they don't do away with the burden, the weight of God's heavy hand upon you, the weight that you heard about in Psalm 32. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. What happens, though, is that you grow used to it. You become accustomed to your guilt. If it's not unloaded from you, you become accustomed to your guilt until you forget. And when you get good at forgetting, then the sky is the limit for what crimes you might commit. So you can see that in a very strange and roundabout way, Bathsheba's pregnancy was a sign of God's mercy toward David. Although he had deeper yet to go before he hit the bottom, Bathsheba's pregnancy meant that he could not expect his sin just to disappear. And that's good. It saved David from the delusion that this sin was not so bad as it seemed. But at the sign of Bathsheba's pregnancy, David went to work. If he was idle before, he's not idle any longer. His first plan was simple. Get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to go home to his wife so that the child would appear to be his. Plan backfired because Uriah proved to be an upright man. David did not seem really to appreciate the irony. Uriah was not easily enticed, doing just what David should have done, keeping his solidarity with his fellow soldiers and keeping himself from his wife. Not even when David got Uriah drunk could he be compelled to do righteously what David had done so wickedly. Uriah wouldn't go home to his wife. He stayed and did his duty, loyal to the army and loyal to King David. None of this seemed to have an impact on David, and his scheme grew more vicious by the moment. He worked his way back from the Sixth Commandment to the Fifth Commandment, and he conspired to have Uriah killed in what would appear to be your average casualty of war. Now, when it was time to cover his tracks, David took command of his army and acted like a king. When it was time to serve his own guilty conscience, he put his hands to work, and the deed was done. And the news came to David. Not only had Uriah died, but several other soldiers as well. Instead of lamenting their deaths, as a good king would, David was relieved. 
What is the death of a handful of men when it would mean that he had spared himself? David got what he wanted. But in the process, he had heaped up his guilt. With every attempt to cover his tracks, he created more guilt along the way. And you can hear how in the story, he didn't really manage to cover his tracks. He left traces everywhere. The message that he sent with Uriah conspiring for his death. Joab knew everything. Joab knew what was up. It seems much more like an open secret. And it was really just a matter of time before it all came to light. And that's a good thing. It was a good thing for David that it was just a matter of time for it to come to light because sins that you think you've gotten away with, sins that you think you've gotten away with, are sins that you do not think you need forgiveness for. If you think you've gotten away with it, then what use is forgiveness for you? David seemed content. He took Bathsheba as his wife, and she gave birth to a son, and all seemed well. It appeared well on the outside, but think, just think, of the condition of David's heart. Now, maybe in your life it's never been such a dramatic and seedy and gory story. Or maybe it has. If it could happen to King David, if King David could fall in this way, any of us could. St. Augustine once said, There is no sin that one man has committed that another man could not commit. Maybe there is sin in your life that you've managed to keep hidden. Maybe there is sin in which you've been caught, sin which has been uncovered. But your sins are not unique. There is no sin that one man has committed that another man could not commit. Folks often think that their sins are unique, and that goes two ways. On the one hand, folks think that their sins are uniquely horrible, that no one else has done such terrible things, that at least no other Christians, no other God-fearing people. If anyone knew, they would never look at me the same way again. You've heard that before or thought that yourselves. My sins are too great to be forgiven. Or on the other hand, it's often thought that sins are unique and special. That my sins are because of my particular weaknesses. And that no one else would understand, but God, God surely does understand. He does understand that his laws must not apply to me because of my special circumstances. They apply to everyone else, but not to me. But there's no such thing as a unique sin. We're all made from the same sinful stuff, this sinful mass of humanity. There's no sin that one man has committed that another man could not commit, even if that man was King David. This story makes that point loud and clear. And it saves us from thinking that God loved David because he was exceptionally righteous, that he was sinless, or that his sins were somehow trivial, little mistakes, easily overlooked. It's not why God loved David. And it's also not the reason he loves you. Not because you're exceptionally righteous, not because your sins never reached a certain point or are trivial. That's not why he loves you. That's not why he loved David. That was never on the table. We do not learn from David how to earn God's love. God, God does not give his love to those who earn it. God's love is the love of a father, unearned, undeserved, simply by virtue of your existence. God loved David and he loves you because you are his. You're his children. And the proof is in the cross. There Jesus died for you, giving forgiveness, life, and salvation to you when you did not deserve it. 
when you had done nothing to earn it, when you were an enemy of God and not his child, when you were a slave and dead in sin and not free and alive in him. God's love comes first, from eternity, for you. God's favor comes first. The reason why David is a man after God's own heart is because he believes God. He believes that God is a father who loves him. He receives from his father every good thing, including this most horrible thing, rebuke and discipline. We do not learn from David how to earn God's love, but we do learn how to repent, how to live as children of God. The prophet Nathan came to David and told him a story. It was a sad story about a rich man with lots of sheep who stole from a poor man his only lamb who was so near to him as a daughter. The rich man took the lamb and slaughtered it. He wanted to look like a good host, but he didn't want to take one of his own lambs. This sad story made David angry, and in a fiery moment of judgment, he cried out, Whoever did this deserves to die. And he accused himself with his own words. David was the rich man who had no lack, but to satisfy his craven appetites, his craven desires, did something cruel and abominable, stealing and destroying what belonged to his neighbor. You are the man, Nathan said. You are the man. Imagine the courage that it took for Nathan to do this job. He knew what David was capable of. He knew that his message was painful, most painful. He knew that what he had to say would come smashing down on David like a ton of bricks. And who knows what David would do to the messenger. We don't have any clues as to how Nathan thought about the whole thing, but it really doesn't matter because it's in the job description of a prophet to speak God's word in season and out, when it is favorable and when it is deadly. His courage could not have come from himself, but can only have come from God, whose word is eternal. A prophet could scheme and conspire all day long to try to figure out how to get people to hear, how to say things in a way that won't upset or enrage them, but the prophet who sets aside God's word has no grounds for courage. Scheming and conspiring as a prophet means you have no courage at all. And worse, he's on his own. If he sets aside God's word to try to get to David without telling him the truth, he's on his own. And worse than that even, he's not only on his own, but he sets David on his own as well. The only hope for both prophet and hearer, for both Nathan and David, their only hope is in God's word. And so Nathan speaks, and God's word bears fruit. Learn from David how to repent. I have sinned against the Lord, period. Nathan hadn't held back. You have despised the word of the Lord, he said, adding the third commandment to the list of the others David had broken. You've despised the Lord himself, injuring his name. There's the second commandment. And you've served yourself. There's the first commandment. You will be punished. Confessing, owning what you've done, acknowledging your guilt, being uncovered is painful, terrible. It is the very worst moment because you have to give up all hope in yourself. I have sinned against the Lord. Period. No hedging, no excusing, no hiding, 
no buts, no shifting blame, no anger or rebellion. I have sinned against the Lord. Period. It's a confession that throws the penitent on the mercy of God. David had no plea, no plea, except his hope that God would be merciful. Repentance is the very worst moment. There is nothing worse than being laid bare, acknowledging your sin and having nothing to hide yourself. It is the very worst moment, but it is at the same time the very best moment. For hope in God's mercy is never put to shame. Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Those are essentially the words of absolution that you hear from your pastor. In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. How can that be? Is God just waving his hand and disappearing the sins like David had hoped for from the beginning? Is it just a parlor trick where by sleight of hand your sins are seen no more? That can't possibly be it. For just as in a parlor trick, the missing cards have to go somewhere. They have to go somewhere, up the sleeve of the magician. Your sins have to go somewhere. And where they go is to the cross, borne by Jesus. At his worst, David was willing to sacrifice innocent lives in order to save his own skin. In the glory of the cross, Jesus suffered and died, sacrificing his own innocent life in order to save yours and David's life and the life of the world. David stood before the prophet and heard those dreadful words, those dreadfully true words, you are the man. Christ stood before the angry crowds and gladly received the false reproach as Pilate presented him, saying, Behold the man. Pilate didn't know what he was saying, but you do. Behold the man who gives his life for the life of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. He has put your sin on his own Son because of his great love for you, his favor toward you, his desire that you no longer be his enemy, but his child. You shall not die because Christ has. Learn from David how to repent. First, learn that everyone is in need of repentance. For we are all of the same sinful stuff as David. Then learn that as terrible as it is to acknowledge your guilt, as painful as it is to be uncovered before God, it is for your good. When God brings your sin before your eyes, when your conscience is stricken, it is a sign of his mercy. For what he means to do with your sin is to forgive it. Do not keep back your sin for yourself. Do not try to bear its weight all by yourself. Confess to God and be free from the burden of a bad conscience. Confess to your pastor when you need to hear God's forgiveness for you. Repent and believe that God is merciful. Your hope in God's mercy is never put to shame. Believe God's word of promise. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. 
May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.